the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Luke. Praise to the God who reigns above. The Gospel of Luke is the collection of eyewitness testimonies that speak of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus the Christ. Up to chapter 20, we have seen Jesus warn the people about the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. Many people turned away from their godless living, forsaking all to follow Jesus. He taught them about God's kingdom and what life in that kingdom would look like on earth. This only infuriated the religious leaders all the more. They wanted to kill Jesus and did all they could to detract from his ministry. Jesus rode in on a donkey as the people placed palm branches on the road. He was questioned about his authority in driving the money changers out of the synagogue. The religious leaders tried to get Jesus to trip up in order to undermine Jesus' authority. Jesus told them to render unto God what belongs to God. We continue with Pastor Will in Luke chapter 20, verse 39. Now the context in Luke 20 is Jesus, he's come to Jerusalem triumphantly, hailed as the Messiah, praised by the crowds goes in, cleanses the temple that obviously upsets the religious leaders. And so they confront him. And they confront him. They're not reasonable. They're not willing to have a conversation. So Jesus doesn't answer their questions. And they decide, well, he's very popular right now. We can't just arrest him in the daylight. So we need to get him to say something incriminating. So first the Pharisees try. That doesn't go well. Then the Sadducees try. Jesus thwarts that as well. Jesus thwarts every attempt to trap him by the religious leaders, answering their questions with beautiful truths from Scripture. Now, here's the the truth, though. Those Scriptures were there for anyone to study and see. It's not like Jesus made up new Scripture on the spot. They were there for anybody who would take the time to study and see them. How had they become so blind to arrive at these weird conclusions and to miss God's simple truths? Well, same way we do today, by placing the words of men as more important than the word of God. Today, Jesus will address the group responsible in Israel for studying scripture and teaching it to the people, the scribes, the rabbis. And what we'll find is that those men were more interested in being celebrities than in faithfully studying God's word. And may that never, ever be found to be true of us. So chapter 20, we begin in verse 39. After Jesus thwarts the Sadducees and explains how the resurrection is biblical, is true, was taught by Moses, it says, then certain of the scribes answering said, Master, you have well said. But after that, they dared not ask him any question at all. So he said to them, how say they that Christ is David's son? David himself says in the book of Psalms, 
The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. David therefore calls him Lord. How is he then his son? We first introduced here, we got to talk about the scribes. Then certain of the scribes answering said, Master, you have well said. This word scribes means expert teachers in the law. Now, this included scripture as well as the traditional civil and religious practices of the day. The rabbis, the teachers. Every village back then had at least one scribe. They served to draft legal contracts if you wanted to get married, if you wanted to take a loan, if you wanted to pass on an inheritance. They were responsible to oversee and approve all those contracts. They spent their entire life studying and making sure that these contracts that you brought were in accordance with the tradition and the scripture, and they spent their entire lives studying and officiating over those important affairs. We often see the scribes lumped together with the Pharisees. The Pharisees were not necessarily scholars. It's funny because when they approach Jesus with their questions and their critiques, they're not the rabbis. They're not students of the law. The Pharisees were kind of more like a spiritual club of men. We had one of those when I was at Bible college, a group that thought that they were the most spiritual. I remember I received an invite to one of their prayer meetings. And it was a wonderful prayer meeting where they cried out for God to judge all the carnal students and to purge and cleanse the school from all its wickedness. And when it came my turn to pray, I said, Lord, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for letting me be here. And then I left. (laughs) There's always people who think they're more spiritual than everyone else. Now, because most scribes taught the Pharisee way of life, the two groups, the Pharisees and the scribes, often found themselves kind of tied together, which is why they're often allies in attacking Jesus. You see the scribes and the Pharisees, scribes and the Pharisees. They kind of go hand in hand, even though they're different groups of people. Now, the Pharisees, we've already seen Jesus critique them numerous times because they lived very public lives. The people viewed them as celebrities. But by their connection to the Pharisees, the scribes were catching some of that fame as well. Being a rabbi was a pretty prestigious thing back then. Came with titles and privileges and recognition and even special benefits sometimes. So when Jesus debunks the Sadducee's silly argument about the resurrection, oh, they're quite happy because they're shown that they were right about their view on the resurrection. And so it says, certain of the scribes answering said, Master, you have well said, which means you have answered correctly or accurately. <laughs> like they, Jesus needed them to approve of his message. We're the scribes and we approve of this message. But that's what these guys are used to doing. These scribes are, are used to either approving or disapproving of what everyone did in society. So they don't hesitate to let everyone know that the Sadducees' ideas are wrong and that Jesus has answered this little conundrum on the resurrection correctly. But does that mean they're for Jesus now? Are they on his side? Well, the end of this chapter indicates a clear no. But you know, Mark tells us that one of these scribes, seeing how biblically solid solid Jesus' answers has been, he asks him, a genuine question. To which before Jesus answers his question, he goes, you know what? You're not far from the kingdom of God. We see all these guys here and they are not on Jesus' side. 
But this one scribe, he becomes a genuine seeker. And that's why Jesus answered the, the foolish trap question of the, of, the, of the Pharisees about paying tribute to Caesar and why he answered the foolish mocking question on the resurrection by the Sadducees. Almost all of them continued to stubbornly reject Jesus, but it did impact one person. And you know what? When this guy, he genuinely wanted to hear more, that was the best place to be because that, that's where Jesus wanted him to be. That's what Jesus was trying to do by answering these questions to get people to go, huh, maybe I don't know the Bible like I thought I did. Maybe I don't know God like I thought I did. Maybe I need to examine this a little bit deeper. And that's what this guy did. Don't get discouraged if you're sharing the gospel with a bunch of people. Nobody's listening. You know, don't get discouraged because people refuse to listen when you preach about Jesus because you never know when one will genuinely listen. You never know when one will genuinely listen. So stay faithful. Stay faithful. Because most of these scribes aren't genuine. It means they're still trying to find a way to trap Jesus. After Jesus' answers, nobody wants to step in the ring with him again. So verse 40 says, after that, you know, they're all going, Jesus, you've said the right thing. And then they're looking at each other and like, I'm not going in the ring with him. The word there, durst, means they did not dare. They didn't even think about it anymore. And it were, uh, it, the whole idea is nobody wanted to try anymore. They were done. The Pharisees, scribes, Sadducees, they'd all accosted Jesus with swagger. We're going to get him. But that's all gone now. And you know what? When you get kind of thumped like that, that should cause you to do some self-examination. But for the most part, they didn't. They remained stubborn. They still want to kill Jesus. And can I encourage you to not be like that? If God is trying to reason with you, be reasonable with him. That doesn't mean you have to have all the answers or make a blind leap of faith. I have people, oh, so you expect me after one sermon, I'm going to become a Christian, Pastor Will, or I'm going to, I'm going to believe everything God says. I, I don't expect that. I'd love to see that. But what I would hope you would do is that you would actually consider what's been said. That you would take the time to seriously consider what Jesus, the Word, has said. God is patient and he's gracious with us as long as we're humble and we're reasonable. Now these guys are not. But because Jesus still loves them, he reaches out to them in mercy. And so while they're kind of sitting there twiddling their thumbs, Jesus asks them a question. And so he said unto them, how say they that Christ is David's son? Now, the they he's referring to here are the scribes. I mean, they're the guys in front of him right now. He's, uh, Matthew and Mark tell us he's talking to the Pharisees, but the they is the scribes. So these guys are going, oh, well, said master. No, 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 no. And he goes, huh, okay. Well, how, come, how come they say that Christ, the Messiah, why did the scribes say the Messiah is David's son? Now, the common view of the Messiah was that he would ride into Jerusalem. Every Jew would accept him and love him. And he would throw out the enemy and set up God's kingdom. Thus, in their mind, that's how they saw the promise that God made to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. So why don't we look there? 2 Samuel 7, and we're going to look at verses 12 through 16. 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 through 16. Now, the context of this is David wants to build God a house. He comes to Nathan the prophet, and he says, I got an idea. 
He goes, God lives in a tent, the mobile tent that goes around everywhere. I want to build him a house. And the prophet says, that's a great idea, David. Do whatever's in your heart. God will bless it. And while Nathan's leaving the, leaving the palace, the Lord's like, that's not my plan. Go back and tell David he can't build me a house. He's got too much blood in his hands. He's a man of war. But tell him this. That blesses me. And tell him, I'm going to build him a house. And so in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12, God's promise to David. And when your days, David, when your days, David, will be fulfilled, and you, David, you'll sleep with your fathers when you die, I will set up your seed, your descendants, after you, which shall proceed out of your bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. But my mercy will not depart away from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. Some of this promise certainly applies to Solomon. He's the one who built the temple. He was both blessed and chastened by God. But the eternal part can't be fulfilled in Solomon. He died. The eternal part can only be fulfilled in the Messiah. Thus, the Messiah was called the son of David, the descendant of David, because one of David's descendants is promised to be the Messiah. Every Jewish rabbi believed that, taught that. That's what they thought. Many people, when Jesus was going around, petitioned him for help by saying, Hail, son of David, have mercy on me. That's how they, it was a messianic title. It was saying, I believe in the Messiah. Come help me out. You know, do the things that the Bible says the Messiah does. You remember when the, uh, I think it was the Canaanite woman? No, it's a Syrophoenician woman, not a Jew. And she was calling out to Jesus, Son of David, have mercy upon me. My daughter's sick. Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus ignored her. For her, she didn't know what it meant. She's a Gentile. It's just a magic word that everybody else used. So Jesus doesn't answer. So finally, the disciples come and go, Master, she's driving us nuts. She won't shut up. Can you just tell her to shut up? <laughs> Gotta love those guys, right? <laughs> and Jesus says, tell her to come here. She falls on her knees and worships Jesus. She drops the magic title and just says, please, my daughter's possessed with a demon. She needs help. She's sick. Jesus said to her, I am but sent to the lost sheep of Israel. It's not, it's not the food on the table is not for the little puppy dogs to eat. She goes, yeah, but the puppy dogs get to eat some of the scraps. She got real with Jesus at that point. No more magic titles, no more religiosity. A real cry for help. And Jesus looked at her and he said, now that's some great faith. Your daughter's whole. He wanted real faith, not a magic title. See, that's the problem is that all these people called out, oh, son of David, son of David, son of David. But all it was in their mind was just a magic word. The way to bring the genie out of the lamp. And so he asks the question, why do they say that the Messiah is the son of David? Why do they use that title? The idea of an eternal king descended from the line of David 
is biblical. God promises that in 2 Samuel 7. But that's not the only passage in the Bible about the Messiah. (laughs) There are hundreds of Messianic passages, and one of them in particular sheds some light on the Messiah's full lineage. So let's look at Psalm 110. Now Jesus, hopefully he's still got a finger in Luke, when he asks the question, how is it that the scribes say that the Messiah is David's son, then in verses 42 and 43, he quotes the first verse of Psalm 110. He says, for David himself said in the book of Psalms, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou on my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus quotes from this Psalm 110, the first verse here, a song by David about the Messiah. We read it for our scripture reading. It talks about how Messiah will be the priest, how he'll be the king, and how he'll be the judge. It starts by talking about how he's the king. Then it talks about how he'll be the priest, and then it closes out with how he'll be the judge. It's not exactly a fun ending there. Uh, but it says by getting rid of all the bad guys, he's going he's gonna to lift up our heads. And I look forward to that day. I look forward to that day when he judges heads of state and wicked men in power, and he sets up a kingdom where righteousness covers the earth like water covers the sea. And, and if our, our country and other, other country needs to get out of the way, then I'm all for it. I want his kingdom. This one has failed me. Now, while the entire psalm talks about how Messiah will fill those roles, this first verse speaks of his lineage. His lineage. How do you say that, Pastor Will? Well, it says, David is the speaker here. So David speaking, he says, the Lord said unto my Lord. So we need to understand who's speaking here. The Lord is Jehovah, Yahweh. That's God. My Lord is a reference to the Messiah. So David here says, God spoke to my Lord, the Messiah, and told him, I want you to sit here at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now there's so much in this statement here that we could get into today that I'm not. I want to focus on Jesus' point from Luke chapter 20. He says, how is it that David that Christ is called David's son, when David said this about the Messiah. Verse 44, David therefore calls him Lord. How can he then be his son? See, David tells us this is something God says to the Messiah, something very important. God calls the Messiah not just David's son, but David's Lord. Do you get the significance of that? David, why is it important to know that he's also David's Lord? Well, Revelation 22.16 puts it a different way. In Revelation 22.16, Jesus, his own words, he says, I, Jesus, to John, he says, I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches, the whole book of Revelation. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and the morning star. Now, the root is where you get the tree from, right? So when he says, I'm the root and the offspring, he's saying, I'm the source of David. I preceded David, and I also am after David. I'm his offspring and his Lord, his source. In patriarchal culture, like Judaism had, no one would ever call their offspring Lord. Never. Never. And David was the king. I mean, he might call his his dad or his grandpa or his great-grandpa if he's still alive, Lord, because of the patriarchy in that society. But there's only one, 
certainly the Messiah is not David's father or grandfather. So there's only one other person that David would ever call Lord, given his position in society, and that's God. It's the only other person. The one who has always been, always is, and always will be. When Jesus says he is the root and the offspring of David, he is saying, I'm God. I came before David and I came after David because I'm the one who was and is and is to come. It's a statement of his humanity and his deity. See, the Messiah isn't just a hero who comes onto the scene and everyone throws a party as he destroys the Gentiles. This is the one seated at the right hand of God from all eternity past. The second member of the Trinity, God, the Son. See, the scribes thought they understood everything about the Messiah. But they had ignored this and many other references in Scripture because it didn't fit with their theology. Didn't fit with their theology. Jesus could have tried to trap them to make them look bad, make him more popular with the people, do what they did to him, but that's not what he's trying to do. The lesson here is similar to the lesson of the first two times that he engaged with the religious leaders. They said, should we pay taxes to Caesar? What's his final answer? Give to God the things that belong to God. Are you giving to God the things that belong to God? That's what he's asking them. Forget about the coin. Give it back. It belongs to Caesar. It's got his name on it. Give it back to him. Got his picture on it. It belongs to him. But how about the real question? Are you Pharisees giving to God the things that belong to God? Are you giving them your whole life? You claim to be the spiritual ones, the righteous ones. Have you really given them your whole life? Sadducees. Ah, the resurrection's silly. And Jesus goes, no, actually Moses taught the resurrection. For God's not the God of the living, but the uh, dead, but the God of the living. And then here's the lesson. For all live unto him. Are you living unto him? That's the question. And that's the question, the lesson he leaves with them. You sit here so pompous and so arrogant, ready to crucify your own Messiah. In just a few days, you're going to cry out words you would never think would come out of your mouth. We have no king but Caesar. What possessed them to do that? Hard hearts, stubborn hearts, angry hearts, bitter hearts, wicked hearts. That's where they were right now. And so Jesus, he's trying to warn them, trying to get them to think, have I given everything to God? Have I given everything that belongs to God to him? Am I living for him or am I living for myself? And then the lesson for these guys, the scribes, do you think you know who the Messiah is, but have you really considered who I am? Wow, that's a heavy question, isn't it? Have you genuinely considered who I am? Sadly, most people don't take serious consideration about Jesus. They'll hear a critique about the Bible or Jesus or Christianity, and that kind of becomes their stance. That kind of becomes their, their thing. If you talk to them about the Lord, ah, you know, the Bible can't be true because the universe is billions and billions of years. They don't really know a lot about the topic. They haven't considered what the Bible even says about that topic, but that kind of becomes their stance. But you know what? Jesus didn't ask these scribes to go listen to other people's opinions on, about him or scripture. He asked them a personal question. Have you considered what the Bible says about me? Have you actually considered? Have you, I mean, you've been fighting me for three years. Have you ever just sat down and thought, 
Maybe I need to re-examine this. Maybe I need to just look at this guy with a, just a clean slate. Have you done that? I can't make people trust Christ. <laughs> Truth is, if Jesus couldn't convince these guys, I certainly can't convince anybody. Think about that for a minute. Jesus, I mean, he's reasoning with them, speaking to them in love and in truth. They didn't believe, for the most part. So, I mean, certainly if he's trying to win intellectual arguments and convince them and try and open their eyes, get them to consider things, and they're not budging, I certainly don't have the capability to do that. But it is very sad here when we see no response. He asks the question, how is it that these guys called Christ David's son when David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? How can that work? Silence. No answer. I mean, it's eerily similar to when Jesus said to them, you know, they asked him, well, by what authority do these things? And he goes, well, I'll tell you if you tell me where John's baptism was from, heaven or men, from God or from men. We haven't figured that out yet. All right, well, then if you're not going to have a reasonable conversation, I'm not going to answer your question. But he's trying to reason with them. He's trying to get them to think, trying to get, have a, a regular conversation it's silence. Not even a, you know, I've never thought about that before. I've never put those two passages together. I'm going to go do some research. There's nothing. Jesus, he's been warning all the religious leaders. It describes now, but he's been warning all of them on this day of impending judgment if they continue to harden their hearts and persist in opposing him. And now the scribes ignore it too. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.